Welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation, a program providing help and information for our caregivers who are vital to the health and welfare of so many people in our community. You can hear Caregiver SOS on air Sundays at 6 p.m. on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. And now, here are your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zernio. Well, thank you very much, and welcome to Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, along with Carol Zerniel, who will be joining us by phone in just a couple of moments. Carol, as many of you know, is a nationally known gerontologist, chairman of the board of the National Council on Aging, and executive director of the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And each week, we talk about caregiving and caregivers and try to provide information, help, and support for caregivers here and across the country. You can Hear this show on AM 930, The Answer. You can also listen to podcasts, which are available at caregiversos.org. And, Carol, good to talk with you. I'm sorry you're out of town. Well, thank you. You know, we we usually say that I'm on assignment somewhere. Um, And actually, this time, I'm coming to you uh, because I am a caregiver, and I have been at home uh, with my parents doing some caregiving issues. So I'm on the caregiving hotline this time. In fact, uh, you're so cute. You had emailed me a note saying, you know, this caregiver thing, this is not easy. No, it's not easy. And um, all of us have to, you know, go through it at one time or another. And this is one of those situations. So it always reinforces the work that we do with the Wellmed Charitable Foundation, Caregiver SOS, you know, all the things that we try to do to help caregivers. I, you know, I, I understand the importance of the work. I'm reminded of that. So you not only talk about it, you do it. That's right. That's right. Well, you know, with these, are, these are not empty words. This is, you know, <laughs> we're walking the walk along with all of our listeners. Well, one of the things that uh, I, I know you want to talk about, and Next Avenue uh, had a pretty good article on it, uh, which dovetails with your situation out there in Amarillo. Uh, hospitals now are required to keep caregivers in the loop in a variety of ways that they have never been required to do before. That's right. Um, this was originally in Kaiser Health News, uh, and there are about 18 states that have passed new laws that took effect here January 2016 um, that require hospitals to involve the family caregiver at the time of hospitalization and during the discharge process. And, you know, the hope is that they're going to improve the patient's overall health and reduce their chances of readmission. But it's really to give that information, you know, how hard it is to know what medication somebody was on before they went in the hospital, then they changed them during the hospital, and what should they be on post-hospitalization. So that's, that's absolutely critical that the caregiver understand those discharge instructions. Uh, in the article, they talked to a woman whose background was in health education, uh, and she had to beg the hospital discharge nurse to explain to her um, how to do some of the procedures that she needed to do. It involved a catheter with her husband. Wow. So it's not something we all know how to do, and they had given her written instructions on a piece of paper, and that wasn't good enough for her, and she really had to stand her ground and say, no, I need somebody to show me how to do this. Um, And so AARP has been doing a lot of work on this. Uh, I think that's probably the most important thing is that they have put together, they're working with different states on legislation uh, for caregivers, and it's called the CARE Act. You may have heard of it, Caregiver Advice, 
record, and enable. Uh, and it's really meant to loop the caregivers into the situations when somebody is in the hospital or being discharged. And I think one of the number one complaints we hear is lack of um, notice on discharge time. Oh, we're letting, you know, your loved one out in two hours. Yeah, all of a sudden. And, and they can't go home or we're going to send them home and, and you know that they live alone. There's no food in the refrigerator. Um, you're, you know, in another city that you've been calling in and checking up on them and you weren't expecting them to be released till next week when you could get up there and help them get placed somewhere. And uh, it, it was just uh, the, the hospital's convenience had nothing to do with the needs, convenience, and challenges facing the patient or the caregiver. Right, right. And just that, you know, realization that if you can't look at the patient in a vacuum. I mean, we do talk about patient-centered care, and we absolutely believe in patient-centered care. But I like to talk about family-centered care because there are many instances, particularly if you have someone coming out of the hospital who is frail, who is very sick, who has dementia. I mean, there can be a number of things. And there are factors happening in the community about what is and is not in the house. Do you or do you not know a good rehab facility or a skilled nursing facility if they need to be placed somewhere? Uh, and you can't just do that in two hours' time. Let me let listeners know that they're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air, brought to you by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. And in just a few minutes, we're going to be talking with Deborah Karcher, who is the co-founder and co-chair of the Final Acts Project an incredibly innovative way to deal with uh, putting together the plans for end of life. And we'll talk with her uh, about how that works and about some incredible meetings they have where they uh, uh, share ideas and share goals and dreams and hopes. Meanwhile, talking with our co-host, Carol Zerniel, uh, who is uh, out in Amarillo providing care and help for her mom and dad, and we're talking about a hospital requirement now in, in 18 states uh, to involve caregivers much more in, in planning. Uh, and, and, of course, whenever you go into a hospital, Carol, as you have discovered, uh, you often meet challenges you didn't particularly want to face. That's, well, that's true. That's true. And, I, you know, I just want to say, um, you know, the, the hospital that, you know, my, one of my parents is in is not in an Amarillo hospital. It's outside of Amarillo. That's, you know, where I am. So not going to say where, where they are, but I just wanted to share, you know, some interesting experience. I was reading this article, and I was thinking about my own experience. Um, and, you know, we, I being a gerontologist and sort of doing this business and my sister being very thorough um, in terms of the way she approaches everything, we ask a lot of questions, you know, and we want to understand exactly what's going on with medication changes and being moved from place to place. You know, what does that involve? And, and I had the experience, it's like being labeled the non-compliant patient. Um, I could hear in the voice of the staff at the hospital that we were the over-the-top caregivers, that we'd ask one too many questions, um, and that they were getting exasperated with us. So, Rather than know, trying to accommodate what your needs, interests... You know, and, and, and I'm not going to say maybe we're over-the-top, I don't know, but we are... We're not in the same town where she had to be hospitalized. And so we have to rely on the communication over the phone, and we're trying to get detailed information. So right. We don't have eyes and ears, you know, on our, on our parent. So, you know, just that, but it was just that feeling, and you could absolutely hear it in her voice. And so then she says to us, the doctor knows more about your mother than anyone. At which point <laughs> I thought, 
Yeah. Well, now that's not really true. <laughs> no, it's never true. <laughs> you know, because we've been leading up to this hospitalization. We've been with her. My sister's been with her 24-7 in some cases, spending the night, you know, really understanding what is and isn't happening. And then to be told that the family, we as a family don't know nearly as much about her as the people in the facility, I thought, well, you know, that's a tough thing to hear. And, and I must say that I, I did verbally disagree with that at the time. <laughs> that explains the uh, missile alert system out in Denver picked up a missile launch out of Amarillo. <laughs> you know, and I, you know, but that, just that frame of mind that, um, you know, that I don't, I think that, that we, we weren't on the healthcare team. Uh, and we like to advocate for caregivers to be on the health care team. And this CARE Act is about family members being on the health care team. And it was obvious to me we weren't on the team because they, on the health care side, knew more th- about my mother than we did. And we would disagree with that. So we weren't on the same team. And that didn't feel good. So for all you caregivers out there who are listening who have had a similar experience, you know, we know that doesn't feel good. Um, and you know, we're going to help work on that as well. And, and of course, you're always afraid uh, uh, if you push it uh, in their mind too far, uh, are they going to neglect or treat your mother in a less yeah, compassionate way? Right. You know, then you're like, oh, gosh, are they going to take it out on her because right. they're upset with us? That's always a fear. Well, it is. It is. And I, I must admit that that thought did cross my mind. You know, and then the last experience, which I'm sure a lot of caregivers will recognize, is that there was a shift change. So um, they'd given my, uh, some medications to my mother that, to help her sleep, and then she had rolled out of bed in this deep sleep and, and hit her head. So here she has this big knot on her head and this bruise, and when the next shift changed, uh, and we called to check on her. They said, oh, well, what happened to her head? Did she fall when she was at home? Oh, wow. How about reading and, the chart? And so, you know, when there's a shift change and the information that you think would be, you know, at top of mind with the people in the facility and it's yes. not top of mind, that's disconcerting for me as a caregiver. It would be disconcerting for anyone uh, for the shift changes. And I think this just, and I'm not a... Uh, there's difficulty in healthcare, and and we understand not everybody knows everything about every patient. This is not one-on-one care, but I think it highlights why family members get so discouraged and frustrated in a hospital situation. Raises a big red flag in your mind. Well, it does because you know it, it was it was serious enough for the hospital to call us when she fell out of bed at five o'clock in the morning. They called us. She fell out of bed. Wow. But then, then when the shift came changed later that day, oh, how did that happen? Wow, did she do that at home? And it's like, ooh, I was hoping you would know, and if somebody was checking up to make sure that that head injury is not a problem. Well, we're going to have to move on. We are flat out of time with our segment. In a moment, we'll be talking with Deborah Karcher, co-founder and co-chair of the Final Acts Project. Carol Zerniel, uh, our best wishes uh, are with you as you partake in caretaking. Thank you. All right. We'll talk again soon on Caregiver SOS on air because you are the co-host. Thank you. Thank you. Take care. Bye-bye. Carol Zerniel, who will be back in studio in in a week or two, and we certainly give her our best wishes uh, as she provides care and support uh, for her family. I'm Ron Aaron. She's Carol Zerniel. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air. Deborah Karcher up in just a moment. 
Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. We are so pleased you're with us on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. If you're just joining us, Carol Zerniel is in Amarillo on family business. In fact, being a caregiver, as she said, uh, the first part of this show. So we are flying solo today, which is not a problem because uh, it's a pleasure to talk with someone that I've gotten the pleasure of getting to know who's doing work that is so important for each and every one of us. Whether you are a Medicare-eligible senior, a caregiver, uh, or just an adult and a family in your 30s or 40s, you need to know about end-of-life care planning. And that's what Deborah Karcher is all about, co-founder and co-chair of the Final Acts Project, using theater and creative arts to support uh, that kind of end-of-life planning. And we are delighted to have her join us. She is a, has a doctorate and professional background in public health and grassroots technology-based startup companies, born in Springfield, Missouri, is that right? Missouri or Missouri? Missouri. 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 Thank you. And serves as executive director of a variety of organizations over the years. She uh, uh, spends a lot of her time now as an unpaid executive director in charge of the Final Acts Project. It is dedicated to humanizing the end-of-life experience using arts, humanities, theater, and more uh, as a resource development. And Deborah, good to see you again. You want to Drop that mic down a little bit and talk right into the end of it. Good to see you too, Ron. Nice to see you as well. And I appreciate you taking the time to come in. Uh, we are a nation that uh, is aging pretty rapidly. Every day, uh, 10,000 baby boomers turn 65. Uh, there was a report in the news the other day that there are more centurions around than ever before. Mm -hmm. uh, so there are 10 instead of two. But, but we are living longer. Uh, but that doesn't necessarily mean we're living better. And right. for folks who haven't done the work to plan for their final moments, their final moments of life, uh, that can cause tremendous stress on family. Yes. So the Final Acts Project was developed um, in hopes of changing the conversation in this nation. We have um, historically... Uh, had an aversion to talking about end of life and all that that entails. And that's a natural aversion, but it's become unnatural in the last 50 years. So we do nothing. And when we don't plan, we end up with uh, family chaos and confusion when we need to be really focused 
on what needs to be done. And those decisions need to be made years before we get to that point. And it's not... And very often when you get to that point, it's too late. It's too late. Um, it's, it's not... Um, It's not unusual for people to delay planning, Um, and and it's really not a gift that any family would want to have. So the the best gift that we can give ourselves and our families and our friends is the gift of planning. And you've come up with a pretty ingenious way, uh, in part, uh, to focus on this, holding bucket list parties. Yes, we have uh, bucket list parties. They have turned out to be a lot more uh, popular and fun than anything else we do. Uh, But we also do performance. Uh, We have humanities events. We have art exhibits that speak to the end-of-life experience. And um, all of them are very effective ways of softening the conversation so that people can think about planning without having it in their face. It, um, it is a wonderful way to kind of walk people through this process of considering what they would want their final script to look like. <coughs> and, and we believe that each person should author their own life script to the best of their ability. So obviously things happen that we have no control over. And even with the best script, things can go entirely in the opposite direction. But the goal is to get our nation to understand that this is actually a very important thing that we, each one of us, has a responsibility to do. My mother used to tell my uh, brother Jim and I that uh, her end-of-life planning was very simple. Uh, when she kicked the bucket, throw in a rowboat, row out to the middle of Lake Erie. We were in Cleveland and just dump her in the water. <laughs> now, that's a plan. That's a plan. That's a plan. Now, needless to say, we didn't follow through with that wish. Uh-huh. Good. But Good. it might have worked out okay. Well, I've heard stranger stories, actually. but uh, And that's what happens <laughs> in our bucket list parties. Uh, people write their wishes, uh, their top three or five wishes, it just depends on the size of the party. And we either read them out of our own bucket or others will vote maybe to do a communal bucket. And we share how we want to live, what we want to do. And some of the stories are really eye-opening. Give me an example. Well, you know, at our first bucket list party, we were really not expecting some of the wishes that came out. Uh, but the very first wish um, that was pulled out of a com- communal bucket, someone had written that they wanted to complete their divorce that year. And the room got very quiet because it's just like, okay. But the lady next to me slapped her leg and said, well, good for you. Don't waste another minute of your life. You get that divorce and be happy. So, again, you never know what's going to come out of a bucket list party. And that's what makes them so much fun. And how do the folks in the room take that? Well, everyone was really quiet. 
for a split second. And then when this other woman spoke uh, up, spoke up, the entire room just, there was no holding them back after that. Nothing was taboo. We talked about personal experiences with uncles that had um, uh, severe illnesses where the family kept saying, no, we want another surgery in spite of the fact that he had dementia. So there, there were a lot of heartfelt stories that also came out of that moment. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on 9.30 a.m. The Answer. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel is on actually uh, caregiving assignment, taking care of her family out in Amarillo. And uh, we look forward to her joining us again in the very near future. We're talking with Deborah Karcher, co-founder and co-chair of the Final Acts Project. And we're talking about end-of-life care, end-of-life planning, uh, which you, you said it at the very top of this uh, chat. Uh, more and more people don't want to talk about it. Well, what do you think the aversion is? Uh, do, do they think, you know, if I talk about it, it's going to be the end of my life? I think that's part of it. And I think our culture has just not supported it for many years. I think a lot of people have uh, assumed the belief that it is a conversation that belongs to the physician or the faith leader. And one of our doctors said, actually, it is a conversation that belongs to each and every person. So I think we just, for a multitude of reasons, lost control of the conversation. You know, for the first time uh, under Medicare rules and reimbursement for doctors, uh, they now are reimbursing for end-of-life discussions Mm -hmm. uh, doctors can have with patients, Mm -hmm. which uh, takes away any excuse someone has for not wanting to talk about it. But, and, and I think that's great, but the challenge is doctors are extraordinarily busy. And to have a robust conversation um, takes more than two minutes. Um, the other issue is that the conversation with between the doctor and the patient um, is happening too late. So our belief is if you are 17, you can vote, you can go to war, you can get married, you can drive a car. Actually, 18 to vote. 18. I'm sorry. You should have an advanced directive. And uh, so adulthood begins at 18. And it's just, it should become, if at all possible, part of our national tradition. Um, We have organ, um, organ donorship on the back of our driver's license. So why not an advanced directive? So um, this is not a conversation that belongs just to an elder population. What got Deborah Karcher involved in uh, this field? What was it about Dr. Karcher that you wanted to uh, work in helping folks put together their advanced directives? Uh, Both personal and professional. Uh, my background is in public health, health communications, and I watched what my parents went through. And my father was the classic, I do not want to sign that piece of paper, because he did think in a strange way that that would... Um, sign sig- the paper, I die. That's right. That's right. So, um, there, and there's mm. a tremendous need. I have uh, many friends that have struggled with the conversation as well. And I'm sure you've seen friends, we all have, whose uh, spouse or son or daughter uh, out of the blue dies 
Uh, and there's there are no plans. Just recently, yes, I saw this again, and um, it, so it's happening every day. And well, people die every day. Doesn't have to be a train wreck. I mean, it's if you if you are prepared, if you have not only spoken with your physician about your wishes, you need to speak with your family. They need to have that buy-in. I want to find out from you in just a moment. We're going to. Uh, Go do a little news at this end and then come right back at you. I want to talk about what ought to be in that advanced directive. Are, are there forms available? Uh, I've heard something about the five wishes that folks can fill out as a way to get this done. We're talking with Deborah Karcher, co-founder and co-chair of the Final Acts Project. Uh, they got a website. they got a Facebook page. Uh, and we'll give you some more information coming up on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron. Carol Zerniel on assignment as a caregiver, taking care of family. And so we are flying solo. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. That's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. Well, we're pleased you're with us here on Caregiver SOS On Air. I'm Ron Aaron, Carol Zerniel, taking care of family out in Amarillo, Texas. So I am flying solo with our very special guest, Deborah Karcher. She's co-founder and co-chair of the Final Acts Project. Dr. Karcher has a background in public health and uh, public policy, as well as dealing with the kind of issues we're talking about here on Caregiver SOS On Air. Uh, End-of-life planning is something, as we mentioned early on, Uh, So many folks avoid, uh, and yet where you do that, where you take care of it, where you've got uh, what you would like done, what kind of decisions you you want made on your behalf after you're gone, Mm -hmm. it makes it so much easier, does it not, Deborah, for everybody involved? It does. Um, We have had families that had an advanced directive. They had their DNR in place. That's a do not resuscitate. Do not resuscitate. And... um, and the family had no idea of the parents' wishes, and they arrive, and they're convinced that their parent would never have had, had that request. Uh, that comes from not discussing your advance directive with your family. So not only should you and your physician know what the game plan is, your entire family should understand what you want and need to agree to your wishes. Because in the case like that, if somebody 
uh, has, for example, a do not resuscitate, uh, in a hospital setting, family can overrule that. They can. Uh, You know, it's unfortunate because the DNR was uh, more than likely uh, put in place by the patient and the spouse. But when other family members walk through the door, uh, it, it can turn the table upside down. That's why they often say for a medical power of attorney, don't pick a close family member. That's true. That's true. Uh, it, it can be very difficult. But the upside of advanced care planning is that if the family all agrees and, and everyone is reading off the same sheet of music, there is less uh, dissension and confusion. And, and it's just a much more peaceful, uh, pleasant departure. What should that look like, the, the uh, advanced planning? What should, is there a document? Does it have to be notarized? Who should have it? How do you put it together? Um, you know, there's a lot of different ways. You can download um, from several different websites an app that you can have on your phone and share with your family. Uh, that will soon be on our website. Um, you can download a form from the internet, print it out. You do not have to have an advanced directive notarized. Um, your will would need to be notarized, but um, the advanced directive is pretty straightforward. And then there are a list of other things that um, you might want to consider having in place. For example, you might want to have a document that shows all of your bank accounts, where your stocks are, and how to retrieve them, and the codes to... I I worked with a woman, this is several years ago, whose husband was a very high-powered attorney, very involved in banking. He dropped dead. Uh Uh, She had no idea he had 30 or 40 different bank accounts all over the United States. Right. Had no idea. Right. Uh, and over time, letters would come in from the banks because there wasn't any activity on the account, uh, and they hadn't picked up that he died. Uh, and it was just amazing to her. Uh, she had to quit her job to handle full-time as executor of the estate because there was so much confusion. Not uncommon. Really? Not uncommon. Uh, how many of us think about writing... All of those numbers, and and one woman uh, suggested, well, you have nothing here for my pet, so what about the animals? You know, who's going to take care of my dog? So um, we're putting together a packet that people can get from us for free uh, that would include that list. A friend of mine who's a, a new board member, Fern Bernie, put together called Are, Are You Ready to Go? And it is a list of all of those questions that you need to answer that have to do with just the practical day-to-day things that we forget about. In fact, one of the things uh, Carol Zerniel, our co-host, and I have talked about uh, from time to time is remembering your a digital and electronic presence. So when you go, uh, what happens to your Facebook page if you have a Facebook page? Exactly. I have some friends I know who have died, and they're still alive and well on Facebook. 
it, it's exactly. confusing. It's confusing. I'm and still one s- of them, uh, his wife has taken over the Facebook page. So the late Joe Sandoval is liking comments on Facebook and he's posting on Facebook, uh, but he's long gone. Yeah. And he I, was a good guy. He was a newsman. A lot of people may know his name. but I lost a good friend this year, and, and she's still on Facebook. And of course And every time she is. I see her, I think, well. <laughs> How you doing? There's Joanne. <laughs> so yeah. it's, uh, it is a little. Um, That's something to add to that list of what Discombobulating, you need to, yeah. Things you need to take care of. Give, give someone your passwords. Right. So, you know. What did I do with all of our paperwork after I went to an attorney and took care of business? I decided the safety deposit box at the bank would be a good place for it. Not. Not. <laughs> no. So um, we take everything out of the safety deposit box and make copies so that all of our kids have a copy and our doctors have a copy. But, um, you know, we have talked to young students at UTSA, and they have been very engaged in this conversation. I asked how many of them had ever thought about end-of-life planning. Maybe three or four hands. Uh, Maybe, right. Maybe. And then I asked how many of them had thought about their parents' advanced planning and their end-of-life. Many more came up um i asked i asked the group how many were actually afraid of death and most of the room um, afraid of death afraid of death yeah and um very best our technical director raised his hand immediately he's afraid of death it's it's not unusual and it's understandable and we're not asking people, you know, to stop fearing death. We're asking them to talk about it and create an environment for themselves and their family so that it's not quite as daunting and fearful as we currently make it. Well, what are some of the things, as you think about an advanced directive, and we get people starting to think about this, and then... We're going to get your website in just a couple of moments and your Facebook page. Uh, what goes in that document? What, what is it you specify? Keep me on life support. Take me off life support. I don't want a feeding tube. Right. I want hamburgers and French fries. Right. What, what kind of stuff? Exactly what you're saying. Um, you know, under what circumstances will I allow um, a feeding tube? Under what circumstances will I allow... The physicians to intubate me. Uh, so it's very specific and it really makes you think about the limits of medical technology that you want in your life. And if you have an illness and you need to be intubated and you know that that illness in the intubation is going to be short-lived, then obviously you're going to say yes. But the advanced directives are pretty specific, and it really does make you think about what, how far you're willing to go. I have a good friend named Gordon who told me an amazing story. His dad, uh, who was very wealthy, uh, Gordon's mom died. He remarried, and his dad fell in his home and, and broke a leg, and he's in the hospital. And Gordon gets a call one day from his dad's physician uh, who says, I have to share something with you that's caused me great concern. Your 
your dad's new wife has come to me and asked that he be unplugged. Well, he's not plugged into anything. He only broke his leg. Uh-oh. Yeah. <laughs> so That's a problem. There you are. Right. That's a big communication problem. Uh, I guess. So Gordon went and talked to his dad about it, and his dad wouldn't believe it, of course. Oh, dear. Oh, she would never do that. No, no. Oh, dear. No, no. Well, I... It's a wonderful story. I. It is a wonderful story. Is it true? Oh, yeah. A true story. <laughs> no, I didn't make that up. In fact, um, my wife and I joke about it. If not, Knock on wood. Uh, I, I, neither of us has really been in the hospital. Uh, but we joke about, well, you know, you go in there, I might have you unplugged. <laughs> Well, my kids know what my wishes are, and I invited my family to have a bucket list party with me a year before last over Christmas, and my son was just, Mom, you're so, you're just so morbid, and I said, no, this is fun. Did you serve cookies, wine, beer, what? We had wine. He was having a, a beer, and, and we were eating, and we were talking about all the wishes and things that we wanted to do. And it actually turned out to be a lot of fun because we were all writing crazy things just because we knew right. we could. Right. But um, so they got into it. They did. Cool. They did. Now give me your website before we run out of time here and uh, your Facebook page. Uh, Facebook page is Final Axe Project, and our website is Final Axe Project. Dot org. That's pretty simple. Axe is plural. Yes. Final Axe Project. Dot org. Yes. And you've got events around town, uh, all free. They're all free. They're all free. And we're moving into Dallas and Fort Worth area with our programming. And we have been invited to Kansas City, Missouri to do a program. So um, we hope to continue to roll this out through Texas. And your goal is? Everyone gets an advanced directive completed. Deborah Karcher, thank you so much. Enjoyed the opportunity to talk with you again thank and really you. appreciate it. And if you have questions for her, you can email her off her website and she will get back to you. Uh, FinalAxeProject.org. Cool. Thank you for joining us. Guess what's up next? Take 10 with Dr. Jamie Heisman. I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS On Air. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to local senior programs that focus wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and the people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers, which offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, as well as stroke, cancer, diabetes, chronic lung disease, and heart disease. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Resource Centers to help you. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. That's caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. And for more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help out, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org.
Well, as we do at the end of every one of our Caregiver SOS on-air programs, uh, we welcome Dr. Jamie Heisman, nationally known expert in addictions and caregiving, a psychotherapist who has spent a lot of years working uh, with caregivers and others. Uh, Carol Zerniel normally joins us for this as well, but Carol uh, is in Amarillo actually being a caregiver, caring for her folks. So we are flying solo. I'm Ron Aaron. Uh, Dr. Jamie, uh, first of all, thank you for making time for us. And uh, I wonder if we're the reason you end up with bronchitis every two weeks. That's, uh, that's an apology in advance to our listeners, I, I take it, because <laughs> I don't have, unfortunately, the button you have for coughing, but, you know, I, uh, I do have bronchitis, and it's continued uh, long after my daughter has brought whatever Petri dish illness <laughs> she has brought home. Well, we all know about that, because i got three little ones, and they are indeed Petri dishes. <laughs> It is amazing the stuff that <laughs> we all end up with. Yeah, However, but, you know, this, this parenting thing was supposed to be for people in their thirties <laughs> and forties. Yeah, I doubt this was the AARP plan, and let's build <laughs> immunological uh, new systems for sixty and seventy-year-old men. You know, there is good news though. As yeah, the kids it? age, uh, they have developed immunity for a lot of the stuff they've been bringing home, so they get sick less. Mazel tov. Uh, to the audience, that's, that's great. I'm glad. That's fabulous. Yeah, so we're waiting for them to age. I'm curious about something, and we have talked about this in a variety of ways uh, over the past several years when it comes to both Caregiver SOS on Air and, and WellMet Radio with Dr. Robin Eikhoff, and that is uh, the numbers especially of men over the age of 65 uh, who struggle with uh, alcohol abuse and for caregivers, uh, that has to present special problems. Well, Ron, alcohol addiction, I mean, complicates any situation, whether it's a caregiver or somebody is who's getting care. Um, let's face it, I mean, being a caregiver is already difficult beyond belief. Um, they're drained. Uh, they're going through a lot of stress-producing issues. Their cortisol levels are higher, and um, things are heartbreaking. Many are going through, you know, some, some issue about their own job and tenseness, and then you put, you know, fuel, if you will, on a fire and put alcohol into the patient, if you will, and now the job becomes twice as hard. Now, what is cortisol? Well, cortisol is when your body feels stress and anxiety. It's the, it's the chemical that's released in your body. It, it helps your body very little. In fact, it's detrimental to your body, but... A lot of people going through stress and strains has this, you know, extra amount in their body. And when people calm down, usually the cortisol level does calm down. But to your point, caring for an alcoholic uh, is, is, is absolutely difficult beyond belief. It's a disease which is biologically predisposed, psychologically induced, and socially reinforced. So if you're a solo caregiver out there helping a loved one who's actually drinking to the point of dependency... You have to look at the three-headed monster and deal with it on your own. You know, other diseases aren't like that. And it's not as simple as just cutting them off from alcohol. No, I mean, quite the contrary. In fact, uh, you can cut somebody off from alcohol for sure, um, but what it's going to create is a situation far worse than, than you would imagine. 
Number one, we don't know how long the person's been drinking. Usually it's many, many years for seniors and boomers. And so you may have a detoxification issue, so their body is actually going to rebel against stopping and will actually create hallucinations sometimes, and the cells will crave alcohol. So that has to be done in a clinically controlled environment, usually uh, an acute care unit in the hospital. Really? Well, yeah, let's face it, and caregivers see it, and they've seen it all their lives, Ron, you know, because let's face it, alcohol sometimes has been part of a culture of a family for years, and then they all of a sudden expect they can do something themselves. But this is a disease. I mean, the American Medical Association says alcoholism is a chronic and terminal illness like any other disease, but we tend to give a different sort of uh, connotation because We've accepted it in our family, and sometimes caregivers themselves have the genetic bug and are also drinking uh, to the point of dependency. I remember a couple of years ago we were interviewing a a caregiver whose uh, husband uh, was indeed an alcoholic, and she talked about uh, she has to be very careful so she keeps her alcohol in a 7-Up bottle in the refrigerator. Well, he's already figured that one out. Let's face it. Alcoholics are, are incredible. They get a sixth sense. It's almost like when we talked about opiate users or you know benzo users, which are also an issue with boomers and seniors that they're getting medication. They're so far ahead of the physician who's prescribing, or they're so far ahead of the caregiver who's trying to monitor. Their entire life, Ron, is built on how do I feed the addiction. So you can bet that that may the caregiver may think that's working. It's not. And one of the things in your practice over the years you've done is try to work with and help people who are addicted. Is it uh, useful for a 65, 70, 85-year-old person uh, to get into therapy to try to uh, deal with uh, an alcohol addiction? Well, caregiving uh, requires, I think, uh, resources beyond one's belief. Uh, meaning, yes, therapy is good for both the caregiver but for the actual person who, who's dependent upon the alcohol, Ron, uh, sometimes going to a therapist is like going elephant hunting with a slingshot. Um, a therapist like myself will see somebody for one hour, one day. We all know that seven times 24 hours is the amount of hours a person actually you know, lives life. And so that one hour may well just stir up a cauldron of issues that, the actual senior or, or caregiver, for that matter, wants to self-medicate about, meaning they're too painful to face anyway. So really us seeing seniors as therapists, we can do good education. But again, we're doing battle with a disease that's within them that is cunning, baffling, and stronger than us as therapists. So actually inpatient or outpatient um, is what I'd recommend before a therapist. And is inpatient uh, or outpatient successful with seniors? I think it's very successful. Um, I work now pretty much lifelong now with seniors with addictions. It's a passion of mine. Um, I think that when somebody says, well, I'm too old or my loved one's been drinking all these years, heck, we're living longer and longer. And if they, they have one or two or three years of beautiful spiritual recovery and fun and play and able to enjoy your grandkids and, and life, then darn it, it, it's worth it. And so I believe personally that, that there's 
there's always hope. I think a, a senior alcoholic really, once they're treated, really gets it much more than, let's say, a young adult or adolescent. Now, that kind of treatment can be expensive. I, uh, I remember not too many years ago the talk about these uh, 29-day treatment programs because that's all insurance would cover. Yes, we do have to live that down as, a, as an industry. Um, and today there is a lot of different types besides for the 28-day level or 29-day. Um, there are also halfway houses. There's support groups. Um, I do think that you can find treatment um, at, a, at an affordable rate. It may not be the type of treatment a person wants, like the Cadillac you know, Country Club place. Or the Betty but Ford Clinic. Yeah, I think you can do this in in a tenth and twelve steps as long as your counselor and you have a therapeutic bond that's trustworthy, that you and your your therapist have a very very good sense of of each other. Um, I do believe that um, in a acute care setting, Ron, which means a hospital setting, that Medicare will pay for lengths of stays, not really long lengths of stays, but lengths of stays. I also believe that. Um, if you have a 401k or if you have money set aside, there's nothing better than to set aside that money to, is for recovery. And, and for the caregiver who, who says to you, well, you know, Dr. Jamie, by the way, if you've just joined us, you're listening to Take 10 on AM 930. The answer, I'm Ron Aaron, along with Dr. Jamie Heisman, and we're talking about uh, addiction among seniors who are care recipients as well as caregivers. Very quickly, for the person who says, hey, you know what? He's been drinking all these years. I'm not going to fight it. Let him drink. Yes. Famous last words, by the way. It's a chronic and terminal illness that will spiral out of control. It, it's a family illness, so it takes no prisoners for spouses, brothers, sisters, sons, and daughters. Um, it is not a diabetes, it's not a pulmonological issue, it's not a cardiac issue, localized medical that can take medication and you're done. It is something which is like a bomb going off in the family. So anybody who says they're just going to let it continue, guess what? It gets worse. Thank you. You get the last word on Take 10 today. And I really appreciate it. Dr. Jamie Heisman, I'm Ron Aaron. You're listening to Caregiver SOS on air on AM 930. The answer. You've been listening to Caregiver SOS on air, presented by the WellMed Charitable Foundation. Email suggestions and comments on this radio program to radio at wellmed.net and join your hosts, Ron Aaron and Carol Zerniel, for another edition of Caregiver SOS on air on 9 30 a.m. The answer. Ten years ago, Dr. George Rapier founded the WellMed Charitable Foundation. His goal, to support seniors and their caregivers in our community. Today, the WellMed Charitable Foundation has contributed millions to the local senior programs that focus on wellness, prevention, and living with chronic illness. Their programs improve the lives of our aging population and people that care for them. Programs like Caregiver SOS Resource Centers that offer complimentary support programs for those caring for loved ones with Alzheimer's disease, dementia, and a whole lot more. San Antonio has six Caregiver SOS Centers. For locations or more information, go to caregiversos.org. Caregiversos.org or call 866-390-6491. 
For more information on how the WellMed Charitable Foundation is impacting San Antonio seniors and how you can help, go to wellmedcharitablefoundation.org. That's wellmedcharitablefoundation.org.